This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. Yo, I'm Dana Duncan. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> Rousing start. Tonight for our 179th episode, we revisit the Best Picture winner of 1976, Rocky, directed by John Abeldson, written by Sylvester Stallone, music by Bill Conti, starring Sylvester Stallone as Robert Rocky Balboa, Talia Shire as Adriana Adrian Panino, Burt Young as Pauly Panino, Carl Weathers as Apollo Creed, Burgess Meredith as Michael Mickey Goldmill, Thayer David as George Miles Jurgens, Joe Spinell as Tony Gazzo, Tony Burton as Tony Duke Evers, Pedro Lovell as Spider Rico, Stan Shaw as Big Dipper Brown, and Joe Frazier as himself. Recognition for this movie? Rocky was released on December 3rd, 1976 to overwhelming critical praise, particularly for Stallone. Rocky, on a budget of around $1 million, would go on to be the highest-grossing film released in 1976, grossing over $225 million, and would be the second-highest-grossing film of 1977 behind only Star Wars. The film would garner nine Oscar nominations, including Best Actor for Stallone, Actress for Talia Shire, two Supporting Actor nominations for Burt Young and Burgess Meredith, Best Original Screenplay, Sound, and Original Song for Gonna Fly Now, winning Best Picture director for John Avildsen, and film editing. The Directors Guild of America awarded Rocky its annual award for Best Film of the Year in 1976, and in 2006, Sylvester Stallone's original screenplay for Rocky was selected for the Writers Guild of America Award as the 78th Best Screenplay of All Time. In June 2008, AFI revealed its 10 Top 10, the best 10 films in 10 classic American film genres, after polling over 1,500 people from the creative community. Rocky was acknowledged as the second best film in the sports genre after Raging Bull. In 2008, Rocky was chosen by British film magazine Empire as one of the 500 greatest movies of all time. In contrast, in a 2005 poll by Empire, Rocky was number nine on their list of the top 10 worst pictures to win Best Picture Oscar. In 2015, The Hollywood Reporter polled hundreds of Academy members, asking them to re-vote on past controversial decisions. Academy members indicated that, given a second chance, they would award the 1977 Oscar for Best Picture to all the president's men instead. Rocky has since appeared on the following lists from the AFI. 100 Years, 100 Movies from 1998 at number 78. AFI's 100 Years, 100 Thrills in 2001 at number 52. For AFI's 100 Years, 100 Passions in 2002 was a nominated film. On AFI's 100 Years, 100 Heroes and Villains in 2003, Rocky Balboa was number 7 on the Heroes list. In AFI's 100 Years, 100 Songs in 2004, Gonna Fly Now was number 58. AFI's 100 Years, 100 Movie Quotes in 2005, Yo! Adrian was number 80. 
AFI's 100 Years of Film Scores in 2005, it was a nominated film score. AFI's 100 Years, 100 Cheers in 2006, it was the number four film. AFI's 100 Years, 100 Movies, 10th Anniversary Edition in 2007, it was the number 57 film. And AFI's 10 Top 10 in 2008, it was the number two sports film. Rocky has gone on to spawn five different sequels and a spin-off franchise in Creed, multiple video games, a musical, and countless documentaries and parodies since its release. In 2006, the Library of Congress selected Rocky for preservation in the United States National Film Registry, and Rocky currently holds a 92% among critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 70 score on Metacritic, and a 4.1 out of 5 on Letterboxd. So, Dad, as we do each week, what is your relationship to this movie? Well, this came out the year I was, I'm trying to think, I think it was in just starting seventh grade. I was too young to really go to the movies. I didn't go to a whole lot of movies at that time. So I think the first time I saw this would have been about 1978-79 on HBO. I was aware of it. We talked about it. I took a speech class, and uh, my uh, speech teacher was absolutely enthralled. He was an Italian, and he just was enthralled by Stallone in the movie. I very vividly remember watching, I think, the first five Rocky films all back to back to back because there was a marathon on ESPN Classic with a host in Burt Reynolds covering all five movies. And you told me, they're decent movies. You should probably see them. They're part of Americana. I think I was about 13, maybe 14, somewhere around the beginning of high school. And I remember enjoying... Pretty much the first three. I was kind of depressed because Apollo dies in force. Spoiler alert for a like 40-some-year-old film. Yes. And thinking five was just atrocious. Yes. And then the sixth one, Rocky Balboa, came out while I was in high school, which I had several friends that were big fans of the franchise that... Uh, decided we were going to get a group together to go see it. And I thought for, you know, a film that hadn't been, or a film franchise that hadn't been touched in like 15 years at the time, it was a really good sequel. I still think that the sixth one is arguably one of the better movies and isn't given a lot of credit. And then obviously the Creed franchise has kind of popped up in recent years with the third one being, I think one of the top 10 grossing films of this year so far. Now, uh-huh. that being said, other than Barbie and Oppenheimer, there haven't been like a lot of high-grossing films, Super Mario Brothers. But even so, I mean, to be a franchise that started, what would it be now, 47 years ago, that uh, it's still hanging around, it's clearly got some cultural impact. A bit. So what would you say the movie's about? Second chances, uh, having an opportunity and trying to make the most of it, overcoming adversity. So there's definitely an underdog element, which I think that's why a lot of boxing movies kind of tap into this as kind of an, a played out arc, if you ask me. Most of the boxers that we see in movies are underdogs or guys that are down and out. They're very rarely the guys who are on top and trying to stay on top. With this movie, it's a guy who literally has nothing, gets plucked out of absolute obscurity, and gets this opportunity of an absolute lifetime 
and holds his own, proving to himself that he has value. This is much about him proving to others as it is him proving to himself that he belongs in a better class than what he has thought himself to be in. And I know we discussed Rocky II last fall. We have previously discussed this movie, obviously. I do think that the first three Rockies, maybe even to an extent Rocky IV, and Rocky Balboa, all are about a specific point in someone's life or career or have something to do that's bigger beyond sports. They're very metaphorical. And I think that despite them being deadpanned or parodied as much as they are, because, yes, there's an element of silly, stupid fun that are in these movies, I still think there is something a little bit more universal and profound, which is why they've connected with people as much as they have. True. I mean, it's the ultimate American story, really. You know, somebody who really is the ultimate underdog, achieving more than anybody thought he could do, and coming right to the edge of ultimate success. So is this the best boxing movie ever made? Uh, I was trying to go through the boxing movies. It's been a long, long time since I've seen Raging Bull. So I would have a very difficult time equating them. But from what I can remember of Raging Bull, and it has probably been 30 years since I've seen Raging Bull, it's much more a character study than a series of events or overcoming obstacles and making you feel good. In fact, I, from what I remember was watching Raging Bull, you came away sad, not exhilarated, by the behavior, conduct, and events that took place in the film. It's been a while, so I'm going to give it a qualified yes. I think that's fair. Obviously, we've had a lot of boxing movies. The Fighter has been a nominated film and received multiple Oscars. Cinderella Man. Cinderella Man, Ali. We, we've had quite a few boxing movies to contend with. I don't think this is necessarily the best Rocky film. I don't think it's necessarily the best movie that involves boxing. But I do think that, and it will be reflected a little bit later, this is probably the greatest boxing movie because it spawns all other boxing movies. And to an extent, you could even argue that this kind of creates the sports movie genre. At least the modern one, yes. So do you want to dig a little further into the movie? Do you have a plot summary ready for us? I do. Rocky is a sports drama directed by John G. Evelson. Written by and starring Sylvester Stallone as the titular character Rocky Balboa. Set in Philadelphia, the story follows Rocky, a small-time boxer and debt collector, struggling to make ends meet in his working-class neighborhood. One day, Rocky is given the chance of a lifetime when he is offered the opportunity to fight Apollo Creed, the reigning heavyweight boxing champion. Apollo is looking for a fresh opponent, for an upcoming match and decides to choose Rocky as a publicity stunt, believing him to be an easy opponent. Rocky sees this as his chance to prove himself and transform his life. The film showcases Rocky's grueling training regiment, his developing romance with Adrian Panino, 
Talia Sharier, and his emotional journey of self-discovery. The climax of the film is the highly anticipated boxing match between Rocky and Apollo. And, despite being the underdog, Rocky's determination and resilience impresses the crowd as he fights with unwavering resolve against the formidable champion. The intense match becomes a metaphor for Rocky's struggle to overcome obstacles and prove his worth. Rocky is a story of hope, perseverance, and the human spirit's ability to triumph over adversity. Thank you. Did you know? After producers Erwin Winkler and Robert Chartoff became interested in the script, they offered Sylvester Stallone an unprecedented $350,000 for the rights. He had $106 in the bank and no car and was trying to sell his dog because he couldn't afford to feed him but he refused to sell unless they agreed to allow him to star in the film. They agreed on the condition that Stallone continue to work as a writer without a fee, and that he work as an actor for scale. After Winkler and Chartoff purchased the film, they took it to United Artists, who envisioned a budget of $2 million with an established star, particularly Robert Redford, Ryan O'Neill, Burt Reynolds, Nick Nolte, or James Caan. When Winkler and Chartoff told United Artists that they could only get the screenplay if Stallone starred, United Artists cut the budget to $1 million and had Chartoff and Winkler sign agreements that they would be personally liable if the film went over budget. The final cost was $1.1 million. Chartoff and Winkler mortgaged their houses for the last $100,000. Did you know? Rocky's dog, Butkus, was actually Sylvester Stallone's dog in real life, and after the end of filming, Stallone kept the two turtles, Cuff and Link, and as of June 2019, he still had them, alive and well. Did you know? Most of the scenes of Rocky jogging through Philadelphia were shot guerrilla style, with no permits, no equipment, and no extras. The shot where he runs past the moored boat, for example, the crew were simply driving by the docks, and John G. Avildsen saw the boat and thought it would make a good visual, so he had Sylvester Stallone simply get out of the van and run along the quays while Abelson himself filmed from the side door. A similar story concerns the famous shot of Rocky jogging through a food market. As he runs, the stall keepers and the people on the sidewalks can clearly be seen looking at him in bemusement. While this works in the context of the film to suggest they're looking at Rocky, in reality they had no idea why this man was running up and down the road being filmed from a van. During this scene, the famous shot where the stall owner throws Rocky an orange was completely improvised by the stall owner who had no idea that a movie was being filmed and that he would be in it. Did you know? The ice rink scene was originally written to feature 300 extras, but the production couldn't afford so many people. When Sylvester Stallone turned up to shoot the scene, to his horror, there was only one extra. So Stallone hastily threw together the scene as it exists in the completed film. This scene has become one of the most popular in the entire Rocky saga. Did you know? In the film, the poster above the ring before Rocky fights Apollo shows... Rocky wearing red shorts with a white stripe when he actually wears white shorts with a red stripe. This was an actual mistake made by the props department that they could not afford to rectify. So Sylvester Stallone came up with the idea for the scene where Rocky points out the mistake himself. The comment about Rocky's robe being too baggy came about the same way. The robe delivered to the set was far too baggy for Stallone, so rather than hope people wouldn't notice, the character himself simply points it out. Did you know? The red satin robe and black hat worn by Stallone in Rocky are featured in the National Museum of American History. Likewise, the red gloves worn by Stallone in Rocky II, 
his white Nike boxing shoes, and striped boxing trunks from Rocky III are archived at the museum. All items were on display for a temporary period following Stallone's donation in 2006 and have since been moved to the museum archives. Did you know? During his audition, Carl Weathers was sparring with Sylvester Stallone and accidentally punched him on the chin. Stallone told Weathers to calm down as it was only an audition, and Weathers said that if he was allowed to audition with a real actor, not a stand-in, he would be able to do a lot better. Director John G. Avildsen smiled and told Weathers that Stallone was the real actor and the writer. Weathers looked at Stallone thoughtfully for a moment and said, well, maybe he'll get better. Stallone immediately offered him the role. <laughs> uh, yeah. And with that, we'll take our first break and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week for our 180th episode, we discuss an iconic romantic comedy of the late 1990s with There's Something About Mary from 1998, celebrating its 25th anniversary. Written and directed by Peter and Bobby Farrelly, co-written with Ed Dechter and John J. Strauss, music by Jonathan Richman, starring Ben Stiller, Cameron Diaz, Matt Dillon, and Chris Elliott. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. All right. Given that we are in the middle of a revisit, if the audience has not been with us before for one of these, we bypass the normal second section of our show in favor of revisiting the scoring. So we will start here with the Stanley rubric and go right into it with Legacy. The original time that we discussed this was March 12th, 2020 which I believe was the day after everything shut down. So our original legacy score at that time was a nine. Do you think we got it right? No. I'll give it a half point higher. I went with the industry as a five and the public as a 4.5. I think the public has kind of lost interest in Rocky per se, and it's become kind of cliche. Um, If it wasn't for the fact that Creed was more edgy and a different route. I don't think it would have the the legs that it does. So I, I gave it a half point down because I don't really think it's, I think Creed, other than the fact that it's tied loosely to it, is not a direct descendant of. Just off the bat, I think your last argument is false. I, I just okay. dismiss it out of hand. The fact that Rocky himself and Stallone is a huge part of both of those movies. And while I think he wrote the second one, he didn't write the original one. I thought that was Ryan Coogler. It's still kind of steeped in the same sauce that made the original Rocky. Creed itself is kind of just a modern revisit of the original Rocky to an extent with a different kid from a different background that's a much more diversity play. The movie is fantastic, but I still think, and I actually had these reversed. I had it as a four for the industry and I had a five for the audience because I think that the audience still responds to this franchise. These movies have been on cable forever. They're constantly watched People know the character. It's a fairly significant character in the history of cinema. You can get people quoting the movie who've never seen it. 
you can get everybody to buy in into certain landmarks in Philadelphia. To an extent, the art museum has to be thinking it's lucky stars that this movie ever came out, because I think that's probably a bigger thing for the art museum than anybody actually going to the art museum in Philadelphia. The statue gets hundreds of people, thousands probably, of people a day visiting the damn thing. I wonder what is more visited as a historical landmark in Philadelphia, the art museum steps and the Rocky statue, or the actual Liberty Bell and Independence Hall. (laughs) Yeah, well, okay. I'm serious. When we went to Philadelphia, that was my one request, is we had to go out to the steps, and we had to go take a picture with the Rocky statue. I couldn't have cared less about most of the other stuff. Yeah, I know. So... I do think this has an appeal with the audience. And given that you could take a spin-off franchise years later and make it a decent movie and still have some legs that's responding to the audience. I mean, Creed was not a low budget film, but it did pretty well, all things considered. So I do think that this has some staying power and there are tropes of this that are just familiar to everybody. Do I think it has the potential to wane over time? Yes. But the fact that Creed came back has kind of rescued what Rocky was and regained some level of interest in the franchise. So while Rocky by itself, and we're kind of judging this as a franchise of the whole because this is the thing that started it, I think this has a unique legacy within film. I just don't know if the industry shares in that because it's not like they're building tent poles around the Rocky franchise. MGM is still producing these movies, I think, but it's not to the level that where they were putting huge financial stakes behind Rocky 2, Rocky 3, Rocky 4, and we're basing budgets on it. So I think in that department, it's clearly waned. And Sylvester Stallone isn't nearly the type of star that he was through the late 70s, 80s, and into the 90s. Because he became such a cultural icon, really on the backing of this. Sure. I went with a slightly reduced level, but I I can be talked up to a 9.5. Alright, that's fine then. So are we settling at 9.5 then? Yes. Okay. Impact and significance, go ahead. Oh, excuse me, I, I suppose I should give the original score. It was an 8.5. Impact and significance. For the industry, I went with a 4.5. Yes, it won Best Picture. And actually, I'm going to change my answer. I'm going to go with a 4 or with a 5.0 in industry simply because it ran the table. It had Best Picture. It had all these other nominations. It spawned, you know, how many sequels. It propelled Stallone's career even though he did some really bad films, one of which we did earlier, which I told you was a bad film, and you, oh, no, 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 it's a soccer film, and it has Stallone. Yeah, well, okay. Victory. Ooh. Yeah. The only one that I can think of as worse is the one he did with Dolly Parton, where he tries to become a Is that Rhinestone Cowboy or something? Uh, I'm not sure, but... Anyway, I can't even remember the name of it. I saw about 15 minutes of it and went, Bleh. And I love Dolly Parton. No, it's so, just Rhinestone. Anyway. Rhinestone, okay. For the public, everybody talked about this film. 
I mean, it was huge. I mean, this is what everybody, everybody, you know, when I'm in junior high, everybody was going, I mean, it was like, whatever. And so I have to give it a five for the public too. So you're going for the full 10. Yeah, I am. I lived through this period of time. It was its popularity that overwhelmed. Because really, I think All the President's Men is a better film and was better done. But the popularity of this was such that it had just so much for juice and legs that the Academy propelled it over the top because of that. So let me just take a look at something quick, because I should have done this in the research. This would just be outside the five years where he transitions into being an action star with the original Rambo First Blood. That was in 82. Yes, because I had a date in my freshman year of college with a very attractive young woman who uh, we went to see. This is what she wanted to see. And I'm like, okay, I'll go see it. And uh, was thought it was a fairly interesting movie, fairly entertaining. Brian Dennehy was the heavy. And um, so, yes, I remember that very well my freshman year of college. I will agree with you that on the audience, it's a wash. It's a five. I mean, the outpouring, the audience connection, the level to which they flocked to this movie, and it became part of the cultural lexicon. It's maybe third, fourth of the decade behind Jaws, Star Wars, and The Godfather. Yeah. Close Encounters, maybe, would be close. Was Close Encounters really that big a movie, though? It started a whole thought about aliens and exploration of space and all that. Eh, maybe not. Maybe I'm just kind of uh, romanticizing certain aspects of society at the time. I was rather young and naive. Well, you're no longer young. Yeah, well, fuck you. Anyway, um... So, actually, that statement is a double insult, so... Um, yes, thank you. You're welcome. I thought it was good. It was well-crafted and well-timed. Yeah, it was. Moving on. So I have a 5 for the audience, as I mentioned. But I had a 4.5 for the industry. I'm just not sure that I can quite put this on the level of some of those other ones. I know it's a big deal. It overwhelmingly was the number one box office draw of the end of 76 and into 77 until Star Wars came out. They were within like six months of each other. But even so, I just think that even though it won Best Picture and got a ton of nominations and was the crowning glory of the moment, it still took time to make Stallone into the big star that he became. And it still took two other Rockies before he kind of transitioned into being the action star. And he still didn't have complete juice yet. When we talked about uh, Rocky II last fall, he had to really go to bat to get himself made director for the second one. And obviously that turned out well, but he wanted such control of this franchise and everybody still, despite its success, despite being an overwhelming favorite and making 220% its original budget, essentially, it just never garnered him enough favors to actually be willing to be taken a risk on until he just proved himself. And to an extent, 
that's him embodying the character of Rocky. He's kind of that success story within Hollywood. So much of Hollywood elite just assumed that this was a flash in the pan, that he would never be back, and that it was just a fluke that he did this, that he would flame out soon after. And the few films that he did outside of Rocky kind of proved that to be the case. I mean, just, what was it, a year before Rocky was released, he's doing softcore porn and did a full frontal nude scene because that's what he needed in order to pay his rent. So this is the ultimate story of rags to riches. So I had a 9.5 combined. I was I was at that 4.5 for industry as well, and I went up. So I'm going to go back to yours so that we're at 9.5. All right. Let's quickly get to novelty. We only had a 5 on this originally. My basic thought on this is, is we were pretty well off because we hadn't established what novelty was with this category. Again, I would argue that this kicked off the modern sports movie, if not just sports movies in general. You started to see constant sports movies crop up immediately following this. The Natural, Caddyshack, Raging Bull. A lot of the best sports movies were in the like two decades following Rocky. And just about every boxing movie, with the lone exception being Raging Bull, because that's just, that's a different movie that's trying to accomplish something incredibly different, is executed in this fashion. Happy Gilmore. Sure. Happy Gilmore. We've covered Dodgeball. I would think that's in a similar vein as this, even though it's a comedy. Most of these sports movies have to do with some underdog overcoming the odds and doing something nobody expected. And it kind of taps into the American longing for a good underdog story. So I think on that level, plus in several of the technical aspects, yeah, the acting is a bit cheesy, and you know it, it doesn't necessarily age on a technical aspect all the best, but it's still a pretty good story. I went with an eight. <sighs> Boy, I'm having a hard time going all the way to an 8 on it. Uh, I mean, I'm at a 7. I could go up to a 7.5. I agree with you for the most part, but it's still an underdog story overcoming odds. And other than setting it within the context of a sports drama, it's not an unusual or a unusual trope for Hollywood. So I I can't go anything more than the 7.5. So point to me the other examples where this is borrowed and been put on this level of a pedestal, that it would be the top grossing film of the year, a cultural sensation, and that it would win Best Picture for using this type of atmosphere that creates every boxing movie and, to an extent, every sports movie after it. Hoosiers borrows the underdog story, Major League, Stuff we've discussed on multiple occasions. All of this stuff borrows from this movie. The underdog story permeates through. The Godfather really was an underdog story. No. Yeah, it was. It's an immigrant story, but he starts from the standpoint that he's already in control when you start the movie. I understand, but the whole background of how he got there was an underground story. Or an underdog story. But you don't get to that till part two. (sighs) I don't know. Uh, 
Boy, I really have a hard time with an eight. Okay. I guess I'll have to settle, but I, I still think that this is probably below what it should be. All right. So let's take another quick break, and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, releasing in the early part of this September, friend of the show Adam Hitchcock of the Streaming Circuit Podcast and I are back with our special monthly series on the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where we will be discussing each film from the original Iron Man up through Avengers Endgame. The first half of each show will be on his feed, The Streaming Circuit, and the second half we will apply the Stan Lee rubric to do each film to determine the greatest Marvel film of all time. This month we're covering Captain America, the first Avenger from 2011. Don't miss out. Make sure you are subscribed to both feeds to get these episodes. So where we left off was with classicness, dad, this is usually your category. I'll let you start off. Hold for one second. The original classicness score on this one was a seven. I think we had it right. I, uh, I think there's some aspects of this that are a little bit dated. You know, the, uh, yelling, the abusiveness of Polly. Yeah. The toxic masculinity, the domestic yeah. violence were things that I highlighted as well. Yeah, and that's where it comes in that I, I can't go anything more than a seven. In fact, I thought seriously about going down to about a six or 6.5. But I'm like, again, this is uh, 1976. And unfortunately, it was not uncommon at that time. It was still common maybe 15 years ago, 10 yeah, years ago, it's, depending it's on slowly, where you lived. It's slowly evolving out. Okay, it's slowly evolving out now. Yeah, well, it was even to some extent then. It wasn't quite as bad 15 years ago as it was, but so I think we got it right. Maybe in white America. <laughs> okay. I'm not even trying to like point out the racial disparities in that, but I do think that white America took some very different lessons from the OJ trial than the rest of the country did. Mm. Anyway, that's for another point in time. The only reason that I would give it above the baseline, even with those issues, I think some of that is dated, but does it really undercut the classicness of the film? I will leave whether this film is a little bit slow and meandering for rewatchability because I think that's a factor there. But the reason I would raise it up to the eight that I'm going to give it is the last 30 minutes is still, it still hits me right in the feels. Yeah. You are elated when he's able to keep taking punches. And when he tells Mick to cut him, you feel the blood pulsing out of your own eye to an extent. Yeah. The fight and the kind of somberness before the fight and just about the last 30 minutes is fantastic. And it still is something that holds up about this film. And so I, I just can't quite get it to a baseline. Even if we're going to go 7.5, I still think that that last 30 minutes would be something that I would put above for this film. I think it's why it works. Okay. I, I got you, but I'm going to stick to my seven. You're, you're going to make me go down to the baseline on this? You're at 7.5? No, I'm at an 8. Ugh. All right, I'll go up to 7.5. All right. Rewatchability, 
after all the nice things that I've said about this film to start with, it's still pretty slow. Yes. Rocky two, I think is dealing with a little bit more complex and universal issues, particularly as it pertains to athletes. I think even three is one of the better written sports movie sequels. I mean, that's something that shouldn't have worked, but there's some good lessons in that. I'm looking forward to when we eventually discuss that one as well. This just isn't an interesting movie until about the last 45 minutes to a half an hour. Once it hits its moment, it's absolute gold. But because of that, I would give this a 2.5 to put it on on my own. And I'm going to give it a four to leave it on, especially if it's the last 45 minutes. So I have a 6.5. I'm at six simply because the more I watch it, the less entertaining the last half hour is because I know so much of how what's going to play out. And the more often I see it, the less I find it necessary to watch it. Part of it is, is you've got this sneaking feeling. You know what's going to likely happen. It's either he's going to come close and fail or he's going to win and it's going to be this huge triumph. And the more you watch it, the less it is that you think one of those... So I, I, I'm at a six. I'm having a difficult time going higher than that. And I'm not going to make you. I'm fine because you've acquiesced to me on a couple of these to give it the six here on and settle out. So then for audience score, the original score had only a 6.9 because we were only using Rotten Tomatoes at that point. So adding in the Google score of 90 and with the 69 still remaining from Rotten Tomatoes gives us a 7.95 average between the two of those. So to recap the categories, the original legacy score was a 9. We went to a 9.5. The original impact and significance score was an 8.5. We went to a 9.5. The original novelty score was a 5. We are up to a 7.5. The original classicness score was a 7. We're up to a 7.5 now. The rewatchability score was a 4.5 originally, and we now have a 6. And the original audience score was a 6.9. We went up to a 7.95. The original total score was a 40.9 and currently places it on our list between Love Actually and In the Heat of the Night. The new score... is a 47.97 and currently places it between Do the Right Thing and From Here to Eternity. Okay. Again, if anyone would like to comment on how we did our scoring, if you disagree, please write us at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com or find us on our socials at Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and we also have a Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast. All right, let's transition just briefly into In Memoriam. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes, Arlene Sorkin, 67, American actress, was in the soap opera Days of Our Lives. She was also a voice in the Batman, the animated series, and was in Duet. So she's the original voice of Harley Quinn, which was a character that was solely created for Batman the Animated Series in the mid to early 90s and becomes kind of the signature figure for creating that character, which went on to be a beloved character and has obviously spawned multiple film adaptations, 
the most recent of which being with, I think, two different Suicide Squad movies and a Birds of Prey movie that involved Margot Robbie. I just think this has become kind of an outstanding character. And given that earlier this year we already lost Kevin Conroy, to have a significant death such as this that was so central a character to what that show was is a little bit moving for me who grew up on Batman the Animated Series and loved some of these characters so much. Kevin Conroy was kind of the voice behind all Batman work forever and ever, and she at least defined the early voice of what Harley Quinn was and who she would be going forward. So I think the entire Batman world owes her a debt of gratitude. We also lost Bob Barker, 99 American Game Shows, The Price is Right, Truth or Consequences, and the film Happy Gilmore. I personally consider this a, a huge loss because he was so much a part of my childhood summers. You know, when I would be home and my mother worked, we had a babysitter, we always made sure we watched The Price is Right at 10 o'clock Central Time. Then we could do stuff outside. Then we'd get back into the house around 3 o'clock to watch Match Game and then Tattletales with Burt Convy uh, hosting. So, And it was one of my grandfather's favorites. He uh, worked as a uh, contractor late in his, in his 70s and 80s. He would organize his day so that he could come home and have a cup of coffee and watch that old Bob Barker on The Price is Right from 10 o'clock to 11 o'clock. I don't know if I've ever watched a full episode of The Price is Right. I'm not even sure I know how all the games are played. But he was an institution like Alex Trebek or Pat Sajak as a game show host for an extended period of time that is just so integral to what that show is. And even though he hasn't been doing it for at least a decade, if not close to a decade and a half, he's still synonymous with what that show was. Even if my generation only knows him from Happy Gilmore or How I Met Your Mother. Well, I'll, I'll tell you this. You know, when I was a really small child and he was doing Truth or Consequences, which was a syndicated game show, it would come on at 6 o'clock on Channel 13 out of Rockford, Illinois. And I would hurry up and my parents would get ticked off at me because I would rush through eating so that I could finish in time to go watch Truth or Consequences at 6 o'clock. Well, we finally remember both of these here for their contributions and how they've touched our lives with a moment of silence here in their honor. Thank you. Okay, Dad, any final thoughts for the week? No, uh, it seems like it's been a long journey, but yet it doesn't seem like it's been that long of a journey, but yet it does. If that makes any sense at all, since where we started with this. What was this, our third or fourth episode? It was our third episode. So our official birthday on the show is February 26th, 2020 which I began this season of the show saying that if we completed to next year, we will have been around as long as the Trump administration. Well, well, at least the first Trump administration. I have to leave the door open for a second Trump administration. Yes. It'll be the new Grover Cleveland. Yes, well, or, you know, question of, you know, how uh, secure phones work from San Quentin. 
can't end up in San Quentin. One, it's no longer a functioning prison. Oh, okay. Two, it's in California, where he wouldn't go. Yeah, well, okay. I don't know. Is there a famous one from Florida? The Everglades? Uh, I I don't know. Just just put him in a a swamp down there somewhere. Yeah. Anyway. All right. So that's my comment. This is it's just been it it's it seems like it wasn't that long ago, but yet it does. I mean, 179 episodes is pretty um, significant. Yeah, it definitely is. 200 is going to feel really weird. Yeah. Because that's going to be about the time that we're going to hit that four-year anniversary. And have we decided what 200 is? Yes, we've already said it multiple times, or at least you've brought it up multiple times. Uh, it isn't that travesty, is it? Gone with the Wind? Yeah. Yes. Can I watch the Carol Burnett version instead? <laughs> no. <laughs> you have to sit through the three-hour and 45-minute version. <sighs> it's really not that bad. It's actually a okay film. It's I know. entertaining, I just, at least, even I if know. it is going to offend your sensibilities. I just have such a difficult time with it because of... My knowledge of history and whatever. Oh, well. Well, I finished Breaking Bad now for the first time. I don't think I'll probably be going back to finish the series again. There are some peak moments that I wouldn't mind occasionally catching here and there. But of the major TV shows that are, I guess, the the golden era of television, the most significant TV shows of the last... 25, 30 years. I've caught The Sopranos. I'm almost through three seasons of The Wire. I've now gotten in Breaking Bad. I've watched Succession. I don't know if there are too many others in there that I gotta try and hit yet, but this would be a good time given that Mad Men. I've already seen Mad Men. I don't even think you finished that. No, I didn't finish the last year. I don't think you finished the last two years. I think I did the set or the la or the second to last the last year. I think I struggled with. I thought you left it at where he was. Uh, whichever season ends, I think it's five with the song "You Only Live Twice." I don't think you came back for the year where he's kind of in between and kind of living out his PTSD, where he's remembering back to the whorehouse he grew up in. And then there's the final season after he takes his sabbatical and then goes on that weird trip to California where he ends up out on some hippie commune. Okay. I don't even really remember most of the last season. Maybe I need to watch that because I may decide that's my future. Okay, cool. You want to yeah. forego all of your possessions? Live on a hippie commune, smoke grass all day. There could be a future in that for you. Mm. But, uh, yeah, I would make suggestions that if you haven't caught some of this stuff and you have availability for some of it, because who knows what's popping up on streaming anytime soon, there are not a lot of the big movies coming out towards the latter half of this year. And given that there doesn't seem to be any willingness by the AMPTP to soften their stance at all on anything... I just don't see the guilds giving in or these strikes ending anytime soon. I think there were people saying, oh, Labor Day will be the thing. We're no. almost at Labor Day. No, it's not even close. Yeah. 
I don't think they're even in in negotiation, really. So at least out in public, this does not seem like it's going to be ending anytime soon. Now, they could announce a surprise deal, but I would make a list for yourself for anybody that has movies or TV or stuff that they felt they needed to watch, kind of like we did during the pandemic, and just catch up on stuff because it may be a while before we get a lot of new stuff. And quite frankly, one of the things that I've noted is is either having access to Pluto, MeTV, trying to remember what other genre that has that opportunity. But I've been I've been rewatching old Johnny Carson episodes from the nineteen seventies, eighties, and early nineties. I'm enjoying them because it's talking about things at that time. So. And there's a lot of old shows that are out there that still have some value. A lot of people have never seen some of the older television from the 60s and 70s. And it's some of it was really good television. So that's going to do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. I couldn't believe that she knew my name. Some of my best friends didn't know my name. Next week, for our 180th episode, we discuss an iconic romantic comedy of the late 1990s with There's Something About Mary from 1998, celebrating its 25th anniversary. Written and directed by Peter and Bobby Farrelly, co-written with Ed Dechter and John J. Strauss, music by Jonathan Richmond, starring Ben Stiller, Cameron Diaz, Matt Dillon, and Chris Elliott. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronniedunkinstudios.com or sign up for our newsletter. Find our new Facebook page on our greatest movie of all time podcast, or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM. 